You are listening to the sermon series, Judges, Thrones of the Heart, from Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, Ohio. To find out more about our church, visit hixcc.org. I'm going to give a warning again as we start today's sermon. Uh, Today's sermon is not just a tragedy, even though it is. Today's sermon is tragic. I've literally had a pit of my stomach the whole week as I've prepared this sermon series in my office. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's three chapters. But I'm going to tell the story of chapters 19 through 21 nonstop. I'm going to do my best to give clarity to the text as we go on, especially since there's a difference in culture and time. And hopefully it'll help you digest today's lesson. But as you digest it, you are going to want to spit it out. It's like a child taking adult medicine for the first time. You've all probably been there as parents or were there as young children, right? There's no sugar in this medicine. How am I supposed to swallow it, right? There is no sugar in this message. History is dark. We just miss it, right? Because... Think about it. If you're a student of history, you know that we live in the top 0.1% of all wealth and comfort in the history of mankind. That's the world we live in. So even if you are in this room and you are on the poorer half of Hicksville, you are still in the top 0.1% of wealth and comfort in all of mankind. So let's begin our descent, and it is a descent this morning into the text. We begin, oh, sorry, this is where life goes when there's no king in the land. This is the focus. Or when the thrones of our heart were filled with false gods. This is, this is the story of the descent. Chapter 19, the Levite and his concubine. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and a Levite... Notice again the priestly class. This is the priestly class of people. These are the people that are supposed to be the closest to the worship of God. The Levite takes a concubine. Look, we know from Genesis on that every time there is more than one person involved in a marriage, the ending is not good, let alone someone who is not just added to the family as a wife, but as a concubine, who in that culture is a wife who has no rights. Now the concubine is unfaithful to the Levite, and she runs away to her father's home. She clearly does not like the Levite, but her husband, and that's the term the text uses, which means that they might legally be husband and wife, but he treats her like a concubine, a second-class wife, which makes the story even worse, but her husband goes to fetch her from her father. Now, her father woos the Levite for several days, trying to smooth things over. The whole text focuses on these two men, the Levite and the father, and it ignores the concubine completely, which is what is happening within this text. Her father is clearly not happy that she's home, but he doesn't want her to stay. 
He keeps the Levite there longer than the Levite intended, longer than even custom demands. And finally, the Levite leaves with his concubine. It's getting late on in their journey, and one of the Levite servants suggested that they stay in Jebus, near Jerusalem for the night. Now, Jebus is a Jebusite town, hence the name Jebus. These are not Israel. And the Levite says he will not turn to a city of foreigners. He's worried about how he might be treated in a non-Israel city. So they kept going, and they made their way to Gibeah. It was now late, and they decided to stay there in a town of Israel. No one would take them in for the night, though. Inhospitality was in the air. So they went to the open square in the middle of the city. Now, an older farmer made his way into town that night with his servants, and he asked them why they're there. And the Levite tells him that they can't find a place to stay, even though they would add no strain to the house because they've brought their own food for their donkeys. They've brought their own wine and bread for both them and whoever takes them in. So the old farmer invites them to his house and feeds them, even though they have their own food. And he washes their feet and they eat and drink. But the town of Gibeah is not like the towns of Israel. Even though they are from the tribe of Benjamin by nationality, they are of their fathers Sodom and Gomorrah in spirituality. The men of Gibeah surround the house. They bang on the walls and doors, demand that the old farmer let the Levite come out so they can defile him. It's the exact same imagery, phraseology, from Genesis 19, when they're in the house of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, that takes place in Judges 19. Instead, what the old farmer does to our shock, and everyone who's read this story, is that instead of giving him the Levite, he offers up his own virgin daughters and the concubine of the Levite instead. But the men of Gibeah even then do not listen. So on the inside, the Levite seizes his concubine and forces her out the door. And they abuse her all night until morning. And as the morning appeared, she crawls back to the door of the old farmer and dies on the doorstep, literally reaching the threshold. The Levite has gone to sleep. When he wakes, he finds her lying at the door to the house with her hands on the threshold, and he doesn't even know she's dead. He simply demands that she get up so that they can leave. And when he realizes that she's dead, there's no mourning. He just tosses her on the back of the donkey, takes her back to his home, cuts her up into 12 pieces, and sends those 12 pieces to every tribe in Israel. The 12 tribes are horrified, and they should be. And they meet together to determine the next action, which leads us to chapter 20, which is the civil war. 
400,000 men from all the tribes assemble. The Levite has gotten everyone's attention at this point. He then proceeds to tell what happened at Gibeah. Well, he tells his version of the events, right? He doesn't let them know that he's the one that pushed her out the door. He leaves that part off. And then he asks for their advice on what they should do next. They decide to purge Israel of this abomination. Now Gibeah is of the tribe of Benjamin. So they send messengers into the tribe of Benjamin saying this, Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Benjamin sides with Gibeah. And the battle lines are drawn, literally. For three days, Israel marches against Benjamin. The first two days, Benjamin wins, and tens of thousands of men die from the nation of Israel. Israel weeps before the Lord every evening, pleading with him, should we continue? Do we have to do this? They do not want bloodshed. But on the third day, the Lord gives Benjamin into their hands. And in the process, 25,000 Benjamites die by the sword. That's just the men. Only 600 men of Benjamin remain. And they've camped out on a rock. Chapter 21, it gets worse. It's the stealing of wives section. Chapter 21 opens by filling in on an audience on a little detail that was missed earlier. When the tribe of Benjamins had met together, not, not the tribe of Benjamins, but when the tribes of Israel met together, they swore that they would not give any of their daughters in marriage to Benjamin. A vow that they are now regretting. You see, this was an unnecessary vow that wasn't based on justice, but was based on vengeance, which is so how often the story goes, is it not? So now they weep bitterly for Israel, for Israel will lack one tribe. So they scheme. In the presence of God, they build an altar and they scheme. They ask what they shall do for the wives of the 600 remaining Benjamins. They ask each other. They don't ask the Lord. Since they swore they wouldn't give up their daughters. And then someone comes up with the wise idea. They remember that one from the inhabitants, there's not one from the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead who was present at their first meeting. It's a city in Jerusalem. Not Jerusalem, but a city in Israel. And so because they weren't present when they made that vow, they decide to take wives from that city. So they send 12,000 of the bravest men. They go to Jabesh Gilead. They kill all the men. They kill all the married women and all the children. They kidnap the 400 virgins in the city, and they decide to make them the wives of the 600 remaining Benjamins, Benjamites. They send word to the 600 survivors of the tribe of Benjamin, but they still weep over the fact that there are 200 of them that will not be with wives. So they scheme again. 
and decide, hey, there's a feast down the road at Shiloh. If we lie in ambush in the vineyards and snatch the daughters from Shiloh during the feast, then the 200 remaining Benjamites can have wives. And then when their fathers and brothers complain, the fathers and brothers won't be guilty because even though they made the vow, they did not give up their daughters. They were kidnapped and stolen. And so they did. And after that, they all went home. And then the story ends as it did, as it began in verse 1 of Judges 19. This ends the whole book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray together. Father God, even now I have a pit in my stomach. I'm sure many in the congregation do too. This brings up, I'm sure, thoughts of trauma, absolute anger, disgust. And Lord, it would be easy to just skip a passage like this. But we're reminded in your scripture that all scripture is God-breathed. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete for every good work. So Lord, as we look on in horror at what took place, may it cause us to examine ourselves and the way that we treat one another. And may we look for the king in the midst of a kingless people. In your son's name I pray, amen. Women and property, women and property. We're gonna settle here for a little bit. Um, this is not an application on making the case of whether women should own property, okay? So calm down. But this is an application on how we treat the women around us. Because the text, women are not property. But so many people treat women as property. What is so heartbreaking about the concubine's life in the, in the very small snapshot we're given, right? Very small snapshot is the way that other men in her life treat her. Her husband does not treat her as a wife. Her father does not treat her as a daughter. He doesn't even acknowledge her when she's home. There's no mention of that when she comes back. She's literally in the other room. And he clearly doesn't want her around. He's, tr he's trying to woo and essentially extort the husband to take her back so he doesn't have to pay for her the rest of his life. He literally bribes the husband with wine to take her back. And now the husband has come to retrieve her. Do not miss this. This is not out of love. This is not out of love. She is only a body for him. And he wants his property back. And it goes further. He is willing to trade his own property for his own safety. Which is exactly what he does at Gibeah. He sleeps that night. 
He forces her out the door, and he goes to bed. No loving husband would sleep that night if their wife was in any sort of even remotely similar situation. But he sleeps. He's well rested in the morning. When he awakes, she's already fallen asleep for good. You have to ask, why then does he rally the troops? Why does he call Israel together? Is it because his concubine has been sexually violated? Nope. His property was taken from him. Any student of history, any student of history, if you've read any history, you know this is not a singular incident. You know this. Because there are so many different titles for groups of people over the course of time, we're going to settle on one this morning just to make the conversation easier. We're going to talk about tribes of people. That can be literally the tribes of Israel. That can be the tribes of Republicans and Democrats. That can be tribes of the um, Hutus. And it, it can literally be tri- Germans, right? But I think a tribe best fits the description. One of the common traits in tribal law, as we'll call it, it's not universal, but it's almost universal in anthropology, is the different ways that tribes treat sexual violations of law within one's tribe compared to those outside the tribe. Within one's tribe, if you were to sexually assault a wife or a daughter, you would be punished accordingly if they were within your tribe. But if the woman from the tribe down the road was in the wrong place at the wrong time, there was no law against it. Especially if they were the weaker tribe. That's just how life worked. And then that's not even including during war or slavery, where it's even more terrifying for women. Women as sexual property is a common theme in all history and in all cultures. Any student of modernity knows that this is not a singular situation in history either. One out of five women in the U.S. have dealt with the crime of rape, whether it's an attempt or whether it actually happened. One in five in our country, in the land of freedom and opportunity, one in five. And over one in three will experience some sort of sexual assault in their life. One in three. For men, it's one in four. One in four will experience some sort of sexual assault in their life. The statistics don't get better, they also get worse. It's so hard to verify these numbers because it's such a hidden crime in our country and it seems at times that the government doesn't really care, but it's averaged that somewhere between 15,000, not 1,500, but 15,000 to 50,000 women and children are sexually sold into slavery in our country a year. 
Think about that number. In the U.S., sexual human trafficking takes place every day. With that in mind, there are those here, statistically, that have experienced some sort of sexual assault in their life. And if that's the case here this morning, I weep with you this morning. We should weep with you. Sexual assault is evil. It is pure evil. Being treated as property instead of a person is evil. And what makes this story so shocking is that this takes place not in Sodom and Gomorrah, but in the nation of Israel. This is a people that have been set apart by God to live righteously, to bring light to the nations, and yet instead of being a light, they have been overcome with such sheer darkness that we can't even fathom. Well, many of us can't fathom it. That's the... So much ink, so much ink has been spilled on submission language within Scripture for wives. And in our culture, far too often, it is hard for wives to submit to men who are not living up to their calling. But if we are children of God, the Word of God, men, speaks to us clearly in the manner of which we are to treat our wives. It speaks clearly. So hear this, men of God. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. For those of you that are freaking out over that language real quick, okay? It has everything to do with just strength. The average man is stronger than the average woman. Are there women that are stronger than men? Yes! But statistically, the average man is stronger than the average women. That's why men who sign up to compete in women's sports have found some victories here lately, and we don't see the opposite taking place. Please don't take it as a slight. It's just science, okay? So on showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look, in the old world, wives submitting to your husbands, when that was read within the text of Scripture, no one in no culture in the world was shocked by this, right? We're now just post-feminism and modernity, and we're shocked by that language, but no one in the old world was shocked by it. You know who was shocked by it? The shocking statement was for husbands to honor their wives, husbands to give themselves up for their wives, honor husbands to treat them as equally valued to men. This is why when you read the opponents of Christianity in the second century, that they call it a religion for women, children, and slaves. Because suddenly women had value that had nowhere else existed over the history of mankind. Far too often, Christian men, and I use those quotations loosely, treat their wives like property instead of being crafted in the image of God. Men, hear me. 
one of the ways that we get to be countercultural is the way in which we love and sacrifice for our wives. You've heard the statistics of history. You've heard the statistics of modernity. If you want us to be a shining beacon light in the world, the way that we love our spouses is a huge model of this. Because when it doesn't happen, it's dark. Men of God in the room who are married, how would the world speak of the way in which you speak of your wife? Do you honor her? Or is she just another old ball and chain joke around the water cooler? Honor your wife among your peers. Single men in the room. Talk about the dating world we live in just treats each other's like bodies. It goes both ways here. It's just property. The way in which we pursue one another in romantic and relationship single men can again be a shining light in a world that does not honor the opposite sex, but uses it. May we not be like Benjamin. Next thing we can take from the text is the idea of defending someone of the same tribe. I'm sure to you too, but to me what was so horrifying this week right, as I read the story of Benjamin, is Benjamin could have just said, here are the worthless men of Gibeah. They are to be punished for their crimes. What a great ending, right, to the book of Judges. That would have been the like, yay, we get to all watch them publicly executed, right? Like, that's more, less of a tragedy than the opposite, right? But instead, they're like, nope, we're going to defend these guys to the death. How could they do that? Well, they're making excuses for them. That's the only way around it. They have to make excuses for what took place in Gibeah. Well, how can they make an excuse for this, Pastor? This is vile and evil. Turn on the nightly news and listen to the chat around the cooler at work, right? It's her fault. She was in a bad situation. She put herself in a bad situation. She probably wanted it. The Levite gave her to the men of Gibeah. How can you blame us for taking a gift? Too often, tribes will make excuses for the actions of those within their own tribe. We live in a very polarized society currently, if you haven't paid attention, right? Just so you know, filling you in. To when you turn on the nightly news... It's all about tribal warfare, and if they're in our tribe for a crime, we'll find an excuse for it. But if the other tribe commits a crime, oh, oh, impeach them, remove them from office. They should suffer X, Y, and Z, right? Like that's, every time there's a mass shooting, everyone's on pins and needles. I wonder what political party they're from. Because if they're mine, I got to find an excuse for the reason they did it. And if they're the other, oh man, we can justify the evil that they're waging war on this country. This is the world that we live in. And that's just the life and death scenarios. We do the same thing where people that we would consider friends and family. Even if we know they did something wrong, we will defend them because, because they're part of our tribe, we think we're doing right. 
The most loving thing, hear me, the most loving thing you can do for someone in your own tribe is to treat sin as sin. To treat evil as evil and not excuse it. John MacArthur says it best, right? Believers confess sin. Unbelievers deny theirs. Will we be a people that simply confess sin to one another and call sin and sin instead of just making excuses for it the whole time? That cannot be us, church. Well, the other tribe doesn't do that, pastor. Christians do not take their moral cues from whatever political king is on the throne currently. Christians take their moral cues from the king of kings. Amen? Romans 12, 1 speaks to this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We look to the king to tell us what's right and wrong, not just whoever sits on the throne of our heart currently. We are to look different than the world so people can find hope, hope in Jesus. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Again, turn on the nightly news. All it is is grumbling and disputing. Half of Twitter is grumbling and disputing, right? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as light in the world. Do you look like the grumblers or do you look like light? You get to shine a light in the darkness. That's your calling. But Benjamin does not do this. They call darkness light. And if we're honest, this is where we're at in our culture, right? We can talk about the good old days, and there was some sense in which the air of the world 50, 60, 70 years ago was much more Christian, even if that's a longer conversation. But the, in the air was at least Christianity, and you could call light, light, and darkness, darkness. The hard part about today is to even convince people that darkness exists, because we call it light. And then we're shocked when sin is actually brought up in discussion. That's the hardest part of the culture we live in today. But this is what Benjamin does. This is what Israel does. And in the process, they become what they hate. Notice how they become what they hate. This is the hypocrisy of Israel. Israel fought to avenge a woman who was treated as property. Yay, Israel! To take vengeance on a people who allied themselves with abuse and death. They, when they waged war against Benjamin, they didn't just kill the men they came across, though. Verse 49 makes clear that they turned their wrath against the tribes of Benjamin. The people, the women, the children, the cities went up in smoke. They burned them to the ground. That is not justice, that is vengeance. And then what do they do? They steal women kill their families, and give those women like property to Benjamin and call it good. They justify kidnapping because it's the best thing for their tribe. In the text, God does 
God is mentioned in the destruction of the men of Benjamin, for they have committed a grievous sin by allying themselves with death. But the people of Israel sit before the Lord. They do not listen to the clear text of the words of the Lord, confronted with the issue of loss before Benjamin. They just assume God would be okay with murder and death of more of Israel for the sake of Benjamin. There's no mention of God's voice when they are trying to scheme their way out of the the promise that they made, the vow that they made. Israel becomes the very thing they sought to destroy because because they use the same means as those who have already abandoned God. They use the exact same means as the Benjamites. They use the exact same justifications as the men of Geba. And then they call it good. They have become what they hated. Why? Because they used the weapons of evil to fight evil. They use evil to fight evil. Let me give you a story that will help you fill you in on this idea. This has been overplayed in literature, but hopefully this helps. In one of the best stories ever, Fellowship of the Ring, any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Any, some? Okay, some. Fellowship of the Ring, right? There's the ring of power that ensnares mankind. They find it, little hobbit guy about this big walks it in, right? Hey, I found this. And so they convene all the nations of Middle Earth, just like Israel, convenes all the tribes of Israel to know what to do with this power. And one of the tribe goes in the Fellowship of the Ring. They say, we should use this gift. This is a gift to where we can overcome evil with it. Boromir says this, it's a gift, a gift to the foes of Mordor. Why not use the ring? Long has my father, the steward of Gondor, kept the forces at bay. By the blood of our people are your lands kept safe. Give Gondor the weapon of the enemy. Let us use it against him. We know how that turns out if you've read the book. I'm not going to spoil it for those of you that have not. They have movies about it too, so if you're not a reader, there's movies, right? I'm not going to spoil that. It doesn't go well. And neither does it here. And neither does it in the Christian life. Romans 12, 21 makes it here clear. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with evil. No, oh, no, no, it doesn't say that. With good. Overcome evil with good. Too many Christians will justify using evil to overcome evil. As we have seen from the story today, all that does is set up a cycle of destruction and death. Jesus offers a new and better way. We saw that when, if you were listening this morning when we did the scripture reading with Jesus before Pilate, he's asking him, you know, why aren't, if you're a king, why aren't they battling for you, for you? And he's like, well, if my kingdom was like the world, we would be doing battle. But my kingdom is greater than the world. Idea is same, also given in 2 Corinthians 3-6. through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the re- weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every loft and opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Obedience is complete when the day of the Lord of glory finally comes. It is then that judgment is going to come swiftly on the wicked. 
Until then, we must not look like the world, especially in the manner in which we do battle. In Tolkien, we know what happened to the man of Gondor who did use the ring. It led to their destruction. In modern-day Christian, American Christianity, I'm convinced of this. The reason it wanes, modern-day American Christianity, is because it battles like the world to the destruction of the world when we're called to be a light of the world and battle differently. We're called to do battle differently. It's what Benjamin never does. It's what the tribes of Israel never do. Why? Because there's no king on the throne of their heart. They've put false gods there. Christian, is there a king on the throne of yours? Long may he live. You see, long live the king. Let's wrap it up with clarity of where Judges falls in the history of God's people. I hope this helps. Israel wants a king like the nations, but they do not realize that they already have a king in Yahweh. Yahweh is king. Everyone say that together. Yahweh is king. And because he is not like the nations, not like the world, they have constantly abandoned him to set up new monarchs monarchs on the thrones of their hearts. And those monarchs have led to hypocrisy, destruction, and make them look and act just like the rest of the dark world. Right after this book, during the time of Judges, God does give the nation of Israel a king, a king like the nations. How does that go for them? We see what happens with Saul. We see what happens with David. Even all the good things that David did, it ultimately fails them. Why does God allow the line of kings to fail in the nation of Israel? To show you that you need more than an earthly king to bring about peace. I would argue you need the prince of peace to reign in your hearts. We need the God-man, Jesus, to sit on the throne. And so Jesus comes not to be a king like the nations, but to be a king that calls the nations to himself. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus. And so what he does is he charges us to follow him. He charges us. He calls us to give up our lives for King Jesus as we set him on the thrones of our heart. And when we do, We fight differently than the world. We live differently than the world. We die differently than the world. For our king is a king that has overcome death and has brought us peace in the process. And so we go to the nations, not to be like the nations, but to proclaim the king of the nations, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, to call disciples, followers, worshipers, and witnesses to the king, to offer peace to the concubine, to offer forgiveness to the Levite, to offer a new way to the Benjamite, to be a temple shining brightly so that even Israel herself would be jealous. That's what Romans 11.11 states, that one day they too might return to the king of kings. Will you live your life as if Jesus is on the throne? Will you fight your battles on your knees, grounded in Scripture, offering up your body as a living sacrifice? Or will you fight as the world fights? Child of God, submit your life to the King 
and find the joy that you've been looking for your whole entire life. Find that shalom and peace that is offered to you in the person and work of Jesus. Find the victory that is offered, not just in this life, but for all eternity. Amen? Bow your heads with me.